Hello, everyone. Welcome to We Are Weezer, episode 43, Simple Pages. And today I'm joined by Chris Garcia from the Three Minute Modernist podcast. Hello. Hi. How's it going? Good. How are you? Wow. No one's ever good? asked me that. I'm, I'm good. I'm very good. <laughs> Ready to talk some wheeze? Absolutely. Okay, good. All right. Well, before we get started, let me tell everybody a little bit about We Are Weezer. We're a podcast about Weezer, obviously. Uh, This is Rachel. I have a co-host, Juliet. Uh, Sometimes I have special guest hosts like today. Uh, We dig around, find details on your favorite Weezer songs. We do one a show. We give you all the details. Um, We review it, rate it using our special rating system and much, much more. So... Without further ado, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back and have a quick interview with Chris. So Chris, why don't you tell us about your podcast in particular? You know, why did you start doing it uh, and when? How long have you been going on now? I actually do a bunch of podcasts. I do a wrestling podcast. I do a, a true crime podcast about the Zodiac Killer. I do a, a podcast about Silicon Valley history called Silicon Valley, which is actually probably the one that gets uh, the most press. It was in the local papers a while back. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it was kind of awesome. <laughs> it had me in this yellow shirt looking very strange. Um, <laughs> but the one that I sort of have much love for is a blog and podcast called Three Minute Modernist. And it is, it grew out of having spent three months in the hospital with my sons, because they were born three months early. And at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital, they have art on every wall, just hundreds of pictures throughout the hospital. And if you ever spend any time in an intensive care unit, it's kind of depressing. Um, yeah. Like we, you know, we had the kid in the thing next to us died. There was a little girl who came in whose heart literally beat wrong. Uh, they didn't beat in order. And so one day they wheeled her out. They stopped her heart for half an hour and they got it working again. Um, but, you know, when you're around that, you kind of need some sort of escape. And for me, it was going around and looking at this artwork. And it was really, really good stuff. I mean, there was some traditional like stuff you would expect to see in art for, you know, in a kid's hospital. But some of it was like Mm -hmm. they had a Liechtenstein on the wall. Oh, cool. I was like, that's a several hundred thousand dollar painting in a boardroom. Uh, So they had the actual, they had like real art. Yeah. Not just like a print of whoever. Exactly. And they got the art, since it's on Stanford's campus, from this museum called the Cantor. I had never been. And so one day uh, when the boys were about about a year, so it would have been 2016, I went to the Cantor Museum and next to it, they have a contemporary art museum called the Anderson Collection. And it just the minute I walked in, you walk up these set of stairs and you're staring at this giant Clifford Still canvas. Massive. And it appears, it emerges as you're walking up the stairs. And I was just blown away. And so about a week later, I started Three Minute Modernist as a way to talk about every painting in the Anderson collection. And from there, it just exploded. I went all over the place with it. <laughs> was that your first art 
experience or are you like an art major? I was an art minor. Actually, my first job out of high school was at the what's now the Smithsonian American Art Museum. And I've always been a museum guy. I love art. And I loved, I've always loved contemporary art. But I had never, I had never gone to a museum like that on a whim. Um, it's always been sort of, you know, I want to go see this show or I want to go mm-hmm. see. Uh, a, a certain collection that's there. Exactly. And in this case, it was, I was going in blind and was just devastated. Uh, just wonderful stuff. And that was 2016. And I actually put Three Minute Modernist, the podcast, on hiatus uh, last week, in fact, because I'm doing another project on the same feed with the same blog called Engineers and uh, Enthusiasts. And it's about the first 20, 25 years of computers in the arts, which combines sort of, you know, day job and, (laughs) and work and the things I do for love and just the ability to just go and, you know, listen to a lot of old bleeps and bloops from computers. I can imagine the, some of the interesting things. Um, So, okay, hold on. Before we go to your other podcasts, this is a nice segue to your job, which is working at the computer history museum. Yeah. So what do you do? What do you guys do all day over there? (laughs) I mean, yeah, well, I'm a curator. And okay, but I have the strangest curation job in the world. I do uh, the official museum podcast called From the Archives, where I take uh, we have 25 years of oral histories. We have recordings of computer pioneers from the 60s, 70s. And I record a little short snippet intro and then we play the the clip. I do things like I do a lot of writing for our blog. I write uh, exhibit labels. I, you know, I do things like this very simple, I move objects from here to there. Um, I Display the computers in different ways. Exactly. And my, my main focus right now is on documenting the early history of computer music. And so okay. I've been doing oral histories. I talked to uh, the lead singer of Devo, Mark Mothersbaugh. I did an oral history with him. That was amazing. Uh, I've talked to a lot of uh, folks who create electronic musical instruments over the past couple of years. Uh, Roger Lynn, who does these amazing drums and keyboard sets that are just mind bottling. Uh, just, I, you know, I get to talk to these people who are really cool. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I got turned down for oral history from Brian Eno himself. And that was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> to get turned down was exciting. Well, he turned me down, not his assistant. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's really the key. When they're, they're willing to say no. You know you're onto something. <laughs> but yeah, it's been, you know, it's a job. I've been here for 20 years next month. Wow. Uh, which is, you know, the longest job I've ever had. I It won't be until I'm 48 that I'll have been here officially half my life. But uh, wow. I'm willing to do that. <laughs> that's how much you love what you do. I mean, that sound, it sounds fun. Do you, so how big is the museum? How many rooms? Uh, we have... Two big exhibits, uh, one which is the basic overview of the history of computing. We call it okay. the first 2,000 years of computers, which has everything from mainframes to the iPhone. We have you one have a called, gigantor one that like takes up a whole wall? Oh, yeah. We have one that is from uh, 1955 that is oh, cool. 12 feet long, 10 feet high, 6 feet wide, 
and it looks like a giant Art Deco refrigerator. <laughs> and it's beautiful. It's just wonderful. One of my favorite what was pieces. I watching? I was watching, um, what's the one about the the late, the it was the African-American ladies who worked at NASA. Hidden and figures. they worked in, um, yes. And they they show like the first computer that they like mm-hmm. got going in there. And I'm like, that is just amazing. That gigantic thing mm-hmm. to print out like this tiny little piece of paper with like four numbers on it. <laughs> or like if you watch an old Twilight Zone and they're trying to be like, technology and it's like these this giant thing and it's like not even real they just have a guy like pushing a piece of paper out of it saying it's a computer or whatever but it's still gigantic it's always been really fascinating yeah we've been lucky enough to get to work with uh folks who make computers for movies because there's actually an industry for people to make computers for tv and film like reference they need that that reference from you yeah so we did one for mad men um, oh, cool! The computer they, the IBM 360 that they used in Mad Men was based off of the IBM 360 that I used to clean regularly. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so cool! Yeah, it's fun. Actually, I used to work. We used to be actually a museum in Boston called the Computer Museum, and the best display we had there was about robots. And we had a R2D2 suit that was actually used in the movie. And wow. my job was once a week to get in and clean it. And nothing will ever beat that. <laughs> Getting to actually. No. Like we have, we have a machine that is the only machine I know that's been both on the moon and in my car. And that's cool. But R2-D2 is cool. <laughs> or, ju- or just as cool, I would say. Like that's really neat. Yeah. So- Tell me about your Zodiac Killer podcast because I'm listening to it right now on um, – it's the same one that did Monster. So it's, yeah. I think it's Monster Pain Zodiac. Lindsay. Yes. Uh, have you? So you've already listened to it or you're caught up? I have been listening to it. Um, I have some philosophical problems with Payne's other podcast, Up and Vanished, or as I call okay. it, Missing Pretty White Girl. I don't want – I don't listen to Missing People. I, I only do – Usually, like serial killers or creepy history, uh, yeah, is my is my deal. Yeah, and I mean, there's there's no way you cannot love uh, my favorite murder. It's just right, and you know, I love though a more acquired taste. I love last podcast on the left, and Me too. listening to those two in particular, I was like, hmm, I could probably do one about the Zodiac and just do about Zodiac because. You know, growing up in the Bay Area, you are steeped in this, particularly in the 70s and 80s. You know, my parents were scarred by the fact that at any minute, Zodiac could have killed them. And so they pass that on to me like diabetes. Um, (laughs) And it was such an interesting story that a whole bunch of us in my school, we were murder junkies. That's what we call ourselves. (laughs) And so one of the guys who actually started the first Zodiac website back in the early 90s was a guy in my high school who I knew. Wow. So I've been interested for a long time. And I figured, you know what? People do true crime podcasts now. Maybe I will. And so I've been doing that for that was the one I started about a year ago today, in fact. So every year I pretty much launched a podcast, Three Minute Modernist in 2016, Silicon Valley in 2017, and uh, the 2018 uh, called Zodiac Speaking. And it's it's a solo podcast, which can be hard to pull off. Um, I don't think I manage, but I try. <laughs> 
so ha- that's a lot of podcasts. You you must like dedicate a lot of time to all that. Re- that's a lot of research. It's a lot of research if I would do it. Um, I mostly go off the top <laughs> of my head. <laughs> well, thank goodness Zodiac, like you have you have that in your memory. Exactly. Know? And that's one of the things that is when I launched Three Minute Modernist, one of the reasons I did that was it was because it was about the emotional reaction to a work of art that I was having. You don't really need to do a lot of research for that. You might That's have to look, look up a label. Um, my <laughs> film podcasts, I usually talk about films that I really love or know uh, really well. Um, so I really, I am very much off the top of my head on a lot of these things. Um, it's one of the reasons why I sort of stick with the same sort of areas that I've been steeped in all my you're life. Comfortable, Yeah, that you're comfortable. Well, why do you think I'm doing a Weezer podcast? That makes some sense. <laughs> um, so... The Silicon Valley, what's that one about? So this actually has an origin story. I was talking with my mom about when she was a kid and everywhere she mentioned was gone. It had all been ripped up. Um, And so I started thinking, huh, it really would be cool to like do a book or an article or something about it. Well, then I was out for a walk and I, I walked by what used to be the movie theater where I'd had my first kiss and it was gone. And I realized now I need to do something like serious. So I decided to do Silicon Valley, which is all the places in Silicon Valley that are now just completely torn away places from my youth restaurants. I loved movie theaters, amusement parks, uh, everything under the sun really <laughs> that is gone. And I mean, I've been here myself since I was born, minus the time I was in Boston. Uh, my family's been here since there was a land bridge because we're Ohlone. It's, you know, there's a huge history. And this place is, even now, is different than when I was a late teenager. And that was way different from when I was a kid. And so Silicon Valley is basically me saying, Guys, we used to have some really, really cool stuff and far less tech bros. Uh, and that was really one of the key things for me to sort of get across and how Silicon Valley has really lost this sort of family idea that we had for years that now is kind of what, what lacks and gone. It's a bunch of smart millennials <laughs> talking about Google and whatnot. It's a bunch of people staring at their phones with way too much money who want booze and loud music and, and infinite amounts of parking, uh, which, <laughs> which has led to the destruction of many places that I truly love. Wow. Yeah. It's a, it's yeah, a yeah, fun I, podcast to do. I think that that's the historian in you. I need to talk about, <laughs> you know, the past and also nostalgia. Cause you get to mm-hmm remember what it was like i'm sure i don't know if you're like googling pictures of it and you know history and you know what replaced it or a what's your format the thing that i do a lot more is going back through either my own writings or luckily i got rid of all my journals from when i was a high schooler um but <laughs> like yearbook stuff because there's always something there that will spark a memory and pretty much everything i do starts as a personal memory 
And because I think all, everyone, every single person has a story that is waiting to come out and you just got to find the thing that will bring that story out. I agree. I think um, we all mostly like when, um, when you're, I don't know, when you're fondly thinking of anything, it's from your, you know, it's from nostalgia or your, your memories or how can I relate it to me in some way in general? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And it's, I mean, let's face it. It's an, an exceptionally egotistical (laughs) project because, you know, it's, 95% 95% of it is me. I occasionally get an interview with, you know, a friend of mine who tells me about the last uh, produce orchard that was still working here. Or when there used to be free space and people would make jump ramps in the rock quarries. <laughs> wow. Yeah, cool. these are things that, you know, are completely gone now that, you know, people miss. Yeah. Well, yeah, we used to have a bunch of uh, drive-ins. Oh, yeah. That are all gone. Um, Sigh. <laughs> RIP drive-ins, but they should bring them back, I think. It's a thing. There's a great documentary about drive-in called Drive-In Movie Memories um, by a buddy of mine named Kurt Kenny, who's amazing. And they look at the whole history of drive-ins, and I used to go to drive-ins. I saw so many movies at drive-ins when I was a kid. And now if there are any of them that still survive, pretty much they are really there to be the flea market during the day, and then they project movies at night. Which mm-hmm. is sad, but at least they're still around, kind of. Yeah. Well, the ones, you know, I think we've had them turn into a mall or a movie theater. So, you know, <laughs> it's like it's still a parking lot in some ways. Yeah, but that's true. What are you going to do? I think they need to make a comeback. Everyone's all about retro now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the record players are back and the hipsters are into everything not fancy so i think that's the next the next step right quite true okay so let's get to let's talk about weezer so how long have you been a weezer fan and what made you get into them from the beginning i can not remember the specific day that i saw the world premiere video of the sweater song but i know it was on 120 minutes Mm because i can vaguely remember Louis Largent saying uh, that was a new bit, new song from Weezer, who I'm sure we'll be hearing more from. Uh, <laughs> and I, I distinctly remember that. Uh, but what really made me their fan was actually a negative review of the Blue Album. And I think Tell it was what, in... What? Rolling Stone? No, it, I think it was either in like the Boston Phoenix or maybe the Berkeley Beacon, which was our college newspaper. Okay. And it was Weezer sound or the new Weezer record sounds like an album they might be giants would put out to begrudgingly settle a contract with a metal label. And I was like I have to I have to dedicate my life to them <laughs> because that just <laughs> sounded so cool to me. I know he meant it as a knock, but it was like no. That's awesome. And You're like, actually, what's wrong with that? That sounds great. Yeah, it does sound great. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I as soon as I bought as I bought the blue album, I was like, yeah, this is great. This is phenomenally good. And then I bought Pinkerton and was very angry. <laughs> so, 
you are, uh, I don't know, I think a lot of people either had to grow on you or um, you loved it immediately, but you don't like it at all? It's Well, here's the thing. As an album, it's phenomenal. Okay. Only real Weezer album I, that I feel holds together as an album and not just a collection of songs. And I think that that takes a lot of talent. That's like not necessarily being an amazing photographer, but being able to tell a story through a book. Mm-hmm. And Pinkerton is a solid album. If you give me any of the songs individually, with the exception of El Scorcho, which is phenomenal, uh, <laughs> I'm just like, no, this is awful. Go to the next one. Go to the next one. And I think I know what it is. I think it felt like Weezer wanting to reinvent themselves, but not allowing them to not be Weezer anymore. I think they pulled back and held on to just enough that it felt watered down. And, you know, at the time I, I was like, no, no. And then I listened to it like, okay, this is, this is good. But the individual songs just don't do it for me, except for El Scorcho, which is great. (laughs) I mean. So is, is that kind of how, how you process music? Like do most songs have to, like be cool standalone or that that's sort of a good question it may like my musical taste in general are really all over the place right now i'm on a really big uh minimalist art kick so things like michael nyman philip glass uh terry riley stuff that's you know really sort of avant-garde weird for the sake of weird (laughs) um (laughs) but there is something to the package the idea of a bunch of things that feel as if they are considered a whole. I still like listening to albums. Um, I still like listening to playlists. Uh, You know, I have a playlist that literally I made in 2009 on my iTunes that I could pick any song out of it. And if the song I expect doesn't come on next, it's completely disjointing and dis- and jarring. <laughs> and, you know, I should, I've had a decade to get over that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's sort of, there is something to be said for the unit, not just for the individual pieces within it. Because as far as pieces go, you know, you'll never beat the Blue Album. Like, almost no album will ever. Uh, can, but you can also realistically just put any of those songs anywhere and the album would still work just as well. With the possible... Ex- I don't think you could start with the sweater song. I, don't think, I honestly don't think you could <laughs> well, probably... Well, I mean, I think that... Um, so the artist puts it together in the... In the... Like the, the DJ set that they want you to lis- listen to. Like your... Like your playlist. Mm-hmm. And... But I understand what you're saying. Because I get, I get what you're saying. Like... Pinkerton is very like it is a um, like it's got a theme and they all go together and roll together. Whereas blue, yeah, they go together, but maybe not as cohesively as Pinkerton or even like the white album is like that. Like it's I think that's a package too. The, yeah, the white album is, is interesting. It's it starts off a lot weaker than it ends for me. And it may be that okay. I that as I'm listening to it, I'm becoming more and more accustomed to that Weezer. 
Mm-hmm. And and what's great about Weezer is Weezer is a band that when it reinvents itself, it doesn't forget that we are Weezer. Cheap plug for your podcast. Um, Thank you. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah, because I think the idea of Weezer occupies a very big space. And yes. at any given time, they're exploring a stripe of that space. And I think it's when they are exploring the most central section of that space they're the most successful. When they're going to the edges, it's more hit or miss, with the exception yeah. of Africa, which is the greatest thing they've ever done. <laughs> On accident. So uh, let's get in. So have you listened to the entire Teal album yet? I have, which is actually very difficult because I really most of the time just want to go straight back to Africa. <laughs> um, I mean, I love Everybody Wants to Rule the World. I think their actual interpretation of it is very interesting. Uh, yeah, in light of my absolute and utter adoring of the original. Uh, just, oh. Yes. Just, that's a band. Uh, I don't know if you ever watched the show Psych, um, which is okay. one of my favorite shows. Uh, James Roday is a huge fan and had uh, uh, the lead singer from Tears for Fears on an episode uh, <laughs> Isn't that cool how movie stars can do that? They can. I want to be that. I know. Without the whole having to be a movie star thing, that seems like so much effort. Um, But yeah, and so I thought that Scrubs didn't happen. Uh, I wonder why it wasn't on the album. It was just, it wasn't there. No. And if it was, I refuse to accept it. Just no. No Scrubs. Uh, I would say that's probably my least favorite one on the entire thing, just because I don't. I don't get it. And and it's so different than the original that I don't even... It's so different from the original and so not Weezer. Yeah. And it they doesn't... didn't even like try to change it. So that's why it's like kind of... It's like you should have gone full Weezer and done the entire song or gone full on TLC yeah. and got funky with it, you know? Or found some third completely out there thing instead yes. of going to... A middle of the road scenario. Yes. They didn't even do the rap. Like, it's like, how can it be the song without the rap part? I don't. I will say this. Thank you, Rivers, for not trying. (laughs) Oh, because maybe he was like, I think that's over the line of cheesiness to do that part. Um, Yeah. Agreed. That would have been like, no, no. But uh, yeah, no. But really, that the Teal album is all about Africa because that is telling the story of this sort of conflict that all bands at this point in their career face. It is which this, is? Which is this idea that their early portion of their career is always about establishing themselves, about setting themselves up for their fan base, for their legacy. And once they've hit the plateau, once they've hit that, because every band has this phase with the possible exception of Cher, uh, where <laughs> you are, you can keep pumping stuff out and it will always have that sort of, well, great, but what's next? And I think very specifically with Africa, the amount of callback, not only in the song, but in the video too, to their influences, to their establishment, to their past, Africa is the sweater song, structurally. 
I I see how that could be. I see I see what you're saying. That makes sense. Yeah, and the video is the sweater song. I haven't seen the video for Africa, have I? It's exactly the sweater mean, song, except for with Weird Al's band. Uh, <laughs> no, that's the sweater song video that Weird Al did. No, no, that that's Africa. Oh my gosh, you're right. I'm a nerd. <laughs> um, and it's so great because it's literally feels like, and it's got to be Rivers saying, talking crap. A kind of, it's more, I think it's more him saying, uh, go to hell, Pitchfork. We're going to do, <laughs> we're going to do this. We're going to cover motherfucking Africa and you're going to love it. And the world is going to go crazy. Yeah. And I have to say, I love it. Musically, it's super solid. It feels like Weezer, even when they are being Toto. Mm-hmm. And that Agreed. is what blows my mind is that I'm listening to it. I'm like, this is someone who is not a great impressionist doing a great impression. And then it becomes them. It's like when Andy Kaufman used to do his, uh, his foreign man and he would be uh, doing terrible imitations, but then he would get to when he did Elvis and he would transform and he would become Elvis. And that 100% was the same feeling I got the first time I heard Africa. And I think that, you know, the video is phenomenal. Uh, it, the entire thing is them looking back, I think, on their influences, on their, their career path, and then decidingly putting out material that plays with all that. This, it's an incredibly playful album. And I think that a lot of the, the criticism it got, some of it's deserved, because No Scrubs is on there. Um, <laughs> Well, but, uh, I don't even like listen to that anymore because it's so just so bad. <laughs> but the other hand, you know, the rest of it, I think, with I can't even think of a single exception. None of it feels like Weezer isn't being Weezer, and a lot of yeah. times you get that on cover albums. Uh, but I thought, you know, as an album as a whole, it's good. The absolute highest high, Africa, is phenomenal. And it gets even better the further back you go to start thinking about it. I, yeah, I I honestly forgot about the video for a second and thought it was hilarious because when, what show? They were playing in LA when Weird Al actually went on stage and performed Africa with them. Mm-hmm. So it it was like perfect that he was in the video and then when they were impersonating all of the dudes and at first you can't even tell Mm -hmm. and you're like, are they recreating um, the sweater song video? But then you're like, oh, it's Weird Al and it's amazing. And Weird Al is like being all sexual and like crazy and Weird Al and you're just like, that's hilarious. Like to envision like Rivers behaving that way or singing that way is hilarious and um just to kind of poke fun at the whole full circle and and you're right i've always i don't know and i don't think they do this on purpose i think it's just like kind of like the life of a of a band kind of but when they were on the everything will be all right tour they would do this um kind of like a show that was different than just on the stage. They would have like TVs throughout the audience or whatever. And I was thinking, oh, that's 
Weezer coming back after a period of time and like reinventing themselves. Mm-hmm. Like there, it was like their version of trying to be like Sergeant Pepper. Yeah. And so for them to kind of do this ode to the sweater song, it's like, well, this is, you know, what got us here. We're covering, yeah, we're covering Africa. And yeah, we're going to cover some more. And we're still going to put out a new album and we're, we're still going to have all these fans. And it's, it's, it's kind of nice to have for the fans too, to go full circle, I think from being like, that's a nerd band and we're into grunge. And like, what are you doing listening to Weezer to full on? Like that's nerdy. No one cares about them anymore. Mm-hmm. They suck to now everyone being like, Oh my God, Africa. I love them. You know, it's like yeah. full circle for everyone, I think. Mm-hmm. And you know, for, for a band that's been around for 25 years, they have done an amazing job of being Weezer. And that's one of the things, you know, I adore, you know, there's a great, the best example of that outside of Weezer I can think of is the Rolling Stones. When they did start me up in the eighties, that was a song that easily could have been on any of their records other than White Horses. Easily could have been on any of those records back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. It really, you know, when you have a band that can do that, where you can hear something that's brand new and say, I wonder if they had had that in their pocket all this time. And I get, I get that a lot with Weezer. Yeah. I think, well, and I think they do that. But at the same time, I I think that they're... Con- he, con- Rivers is constantly writing new stuff oh, and yeah. coming up with new stuff and new trying new things. And I guess that they are doing it so often that they kind of fluctuate back and forth between the new and the old so that it's more forgivable if you don't like something, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and, um, and I think we're also trained to have a love for the Weezer concept. And... I think that that is something that is is less possible with today's bands because mm-hmm. you don't get that sort of saturated play anymore. Uh, you know, you're not a great band like OK Go, for example, one of my other favorite bands, my son's favorite band. Uh, so favorite band. Thank <laughs> God he never got into Raffi. Uh, but <laughs> they don't have the saturation in the culture that... Weezer did in 93, 94, 95. Yeah. And again in 2001, 2002, and again in 2007. <laughs> you know, that, that sort of penetration that turned folks like, like yourself, like me, like so many of us, into just diehard Weezer. We have it ingrained in us. It's a part of our DNA. Yeah. I think that that is why they have been able to to last this song. And the kids, they can kind of say, you know, I don't understand why mom or these other people are into Weezer, but let me give them a chance. And now, now that they do, they can get into it. And they're still able to um, cater to all the different, ranges of mm-hmm. I I don't know that I relate to um the earlier albums the same way that I used to now that I because I've tried to I was listening to blue the other day and I'm like ah, do I want to listen to this right now <laughs> which is weird but you know it's 
I think it's normal too. Well, it also it also has to do when it comes out. I mean, I was a freshman in college when Blue came out. And I think I was a junior when Pinkerton did. And those will always have be have deep ties to uh to you know that college experience I had, which was fairly positive, if cold. Uh <laughs> but you know, the green green album has two thousand one, which for me was a really good year until uh something happened in September. I don't remember quite much. But that sort of idea that you attach the sounds of a period with your memories going forward. And again, that saturation really helped. You know, there was a time you couldn't go anywhere without hearing hash pipe and yeah. which a good song, uh, not my favorite, but very good, very crunchy. Um, you know, you, that will always have memories of with me, Going out to Pink's Hot Dogs, which one of my all-time favorite places. Uh, and, you know, I'll always have memories of Simple Pages going t- for a ride in my friend Matt Chibesta's car. Shout out to Matt Chibesta. Yeah. He's obviously listening uh, <laughs> right now. He's somewhere in the room. <laughs> but uh, uh, we were out driving one night and we were on... Uh, might have been Highway 1. And I swear he may have been trying to kill me because uh, <laughs> he was going like 85 on like the the section of road where you shouldn't be going over on a car. Um, just not humanly drivable. And yeah, but, you know, I'll always have that connection. And, you know, it's those things. It's again, it's again, it's memories tying into the world that we're in at that moment. And then we want to go back to those occasionally. Yes. So I sent you a couple choices for uh, songs and you picked simple pages out of all of them. What made you choose uh, simple pages? It's a phenomenal song. It's almost certainly my favorite song on the green album. It is... So if you break it down the way I sort of break down music, does it evoke something with its opening? Absolutely. Dun, dun, mm-hmm. dun, dun. It, it, a, an intro that would not be out of place in most of 1970s metal. Definitely. And then it leads to this wonderful power poppy, straight ahead, driving movement without being, I guess, hmm, without being strident. That's my big, yes. my big problem with Hashpipe is it's just, it's a strident song. If I'm in the mood for a strident song, if I really want to drive like an asshole, um, <laughs> you know, I put on Hashpipe. Um, but I like it. Yeah. But, you know, it's just got that great sort of, there's, there's both a sweetness, but there's also that just, it's not cloying. It's, it's enhancing of the entire experience. And then you just get the bridge and Mm -hmm. it's just so smooth. And it's, it's everything I love about Weezer in one song that isn't the sweater song or say it ain't so, Uh, you know, which I I literally see as the same, same as either the same side of two different coins or different side of the same coin. Just wonderful, wonderful idea that you have this unexpected sort of 
not necessarily turn, but it kind of is. But it's more of an ev- evolution of a song as it goes through. And musically, I think Simple Pages just evolves the entire way through. And it just, it picks you up and it leaves you in two different emotive spaces. And it really, really works. And it's, it's the, to me, it's the gem of the Green Album. It really is. And from the sort of the first three albums, it's probably my third, maybe fourth favorite song. Oh, nice. And the other ones had all been done. So, <laughs> What are the other ones? Uh, I love the sweater song. I love Say It Ain't So. Uh, and I adore El Scorcho. <laughs> those are sort of the three those are you know and i know none of them are deep cuts and this one kind of is <laughs> but i don't think it matters i mean who do, I, how do you not like any of those right like oh yeah and i know plenty I of people we've done the sweater song though we'll have to have you back on and do the sweater song i don't think we've done you it haven't done the sweater song yet oh, I, love... I don't think so so many stories about the sweater song <laughs> i um and I think that that's why I picked, because I was like, okay, let me, uh, you had, you said you wanted something earlier. So I, I stayed early, but I wanted to, I think that that's why I picked Simple Pages. Cause I'm like, what could I pick on green that I, that isn't like played out and that isn't, you know, that I like also. And I like, I like, I was like, oh, Simple Pages is a good one. Like, let's talk about that. So I was glad that you picked that out of the the choices actually because it is a good song yeah it's a great song it's and that's the thing is it's a great song and the whole idea of you know to get sort of big picture the whole idea of punk rock was to bring radio back to the idea of a song you hear on the radio it was to get away from the you know the swirling rock operas that were the 1970s and to bring it back into something compact, something that you could digest and move on to the next thing. And 100%, that's what Simple Pages does. And even better is it does it in a way that isn't fluffy. It, that there's actually something there. There is meat to chew on. But it's yeah. not necessarily intellectual meat. It's, it's sort of the interplay of the melody with amazing delivery. It's some of the most beautifully delivered lines. Uh, even if it wasn't until yesterday that I didn't do a deep dive into what the actual lyrics were. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's always hard. That's like, you know, it's hard to make time to go all deep diving on everything all the time. Yeah. And you know, when you spend as much time analyzing artworks as I do, um, you can get a little bit, hung up on your weird conspiracy theories, but we'll get to that later. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that is a good place to, to jump into song discussion. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. We'll be right back. Give me some love, give me some love, take it, that's the wrong, wrong way to be. 
Welcome back, everyone. This is Rachel, and I'm here with Chris, and we're going to talk about Simple Pages. So Simple Pages is from the Green Album. It's track number eight. It's after Smile and right before Glorious Day. It was released May 15th, 2001, recorded in December 2000 at Cello Studios in Los Angeles, California. It is two minutes and 57 seconds long, very short, even for Weezer. The label is Geffen. It's officially released. And according to Setlist FM, it was debuted live April 15th of 2001. So a month, exactly a month before. It's number 543 on the Rivers Cuomo song chronology and 235 in the catalog of riffs. (laughs) <laughs> Woo. Um, tell us about the personnel, Chris Well, it was written by Rivers Cuomo But it was produced by Superstar musician, rock star 1980s god of the cars Rick Ocasek Rivers gave us lead guitar and lead vocals Patrick Wilson Not the actor from the Watchmen film uh, Which... <laughs> What made me so sad when I realized that. Played percussion, mostly drums. Brian Bell, of course, rhythm guitar, backing vocals, and actually really good backing vocals, too. Yes, notably on this one. Mm -hmm. And Mikey Welsh, of course, bass guitar. Oh, and backing vocals, technically. But really, really it's Brian's voice you're getting most of it in the backing. I think so, too. And maybe a little bit of, of Rivers. Yeah, that's probably true. I think this one gets an extra Mikey point because it's a Mikey song and we don't have a lot of those. Um, it appears on the Green Album and that is it. Um, so from Weezerpedia, Simple Pages is one of 14 songs that leaked before the Green Album's release and it was originally titled Give Me Some Love. That is very surprising. I'm glad they changed it. What do you, yeah, any thoughts on that? Um, I think there's another song called Give Me Some Love, possibly by Wilson Pickett. <laughs> the one that's like, Give me some love. Give me some love. Yeah, that one. Every day. Da, 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 da. <laughs> I think that one is Love In with the I N apostrophe, though. You may be right. <laughs> but I know what you're saying. Yes. <laughs> Uh, oh, Wikipedia Green Album Fun Facts. So I guess that the art direction for this album was handled by Chris Bilheimer, uh, photography by Marina Chavez and Carl Cook. And um, as we all know, it's similar to the cover art of Weezer's debut Blue Album. Which I really wish they had just carried that on the entire way through their career. So that... Wouldn't that be funny? So that every album would be like, you know, you'd have... They'd all be called Weezer and, you know, uh, and you could literally say, you know, uh, you know, what record were you looking at? The red one. Oh, there you go. You know, that would make it so much easier for us people who organize things by color. (laughs) I guess after a while, though, it would be kind of hard. Like, uh, do you have light green? Oh, oh, no, we have seafoam. Oh, that'll do. They're like, well, you guys used teal two time, two albums ago. We don't have any more blues. Uh, the azul is, uh, is, is the, it's out. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. Hey, I got a little bit about the cover art here. Yes. Uh, that the cover art was shot between band practices and featured 
see if these names strike a, strike a memory to you. <laughs> Mikey Welch, Rivers Cuomo, Brian Bell, and Patrick Wilson. They're standing left to right in front of a plane. Now, Weezer P- or Wikipedia says it's lime green. I do not believe that is lime green. I think that is Kelly green. Oh, I like to call it Weezer green album green. That's actually a good way to put it. <laughs> it is a, a cr- I think it's a cross between regular green and lime green. It's not super limey. It's got like a a forest in it, like a tinge of forest knew, in it. I wish I had my Pantone set. <laughs> I'd go and do some comparison. I know because I always imagine Kelly green to be like a darker green. No? I guess, yeah, it is a little bit darker, but yeah, it's not quite chroma key green, but it's it's somewhere in the, it's not quite lime green. So uh, Wikipedia, please update that. Uh, <laughs> but apparently this was done as a tribute to Rick Ocasek, who had produced their first album, of course, and to symbolize the band's back to basics approach while they were recording the album. Which is really interesting because this, to me, feels way less produced than their first album. And Rick Ocasek is sort of known as a... Producer. Active producer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, The Cars is the best example of that, I think, is, you know, uh, uh uh-oh, it's magic. Mm -hmm. Is (laughs) hyper-produced within an inch of its life. Uh, all of the little uh, bells Super and whistles. Sparkly. Yeah. yeah. And it's a wonderful song for that. And it, it kind of feels like here he sort of took a little step back, just a touch, but maybe not to the level that a normal producer would go to. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely still a lot of Brian Wilson influence here. You think? Uh, well, in- it's not quite wall of sound, but you get that sort of idea that it's less I think it's less stripped down than a fair bit of Pinkerton was yes I think it's okay it's okay to be like loud and um have sound constantly there's no like up and down it's just very constant I would say yeah and that can that has its place and it has its drawbacks uh but I think really one of the things that uh you got from this sort of I don't want to say overproduction, but strongly produced, (laughs) uh, is that you get a more controlled sound. And what happens when you get the the uncontrolled sound is you get something like Hashpipe, which is, you know, the ultimate example of wall of sound, but with very heavy influences driving it in a direction that doesn't really work as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I am bagging a lot on Hashpipe. Uh, I know. What's up with that? Do you hate Hashpipe? <laughs> I, I'm not a huge fan. It's a good song. It's actually, I would say, the lyrics are better than the music. I like the, okay. You don't have to like Hash to, li- to like the song. Uh, no, no, no. You don't. And it is very, okay. I guess it's a specific sound that you have to... Mm-hmm. appreciate and like you said it's got to be you got to be feeling a little hash pipey you can't just like <laughs> you know it's not maybe not something you want to wake up to on the alarm clock in the morning <laughs> but if you want to like 
clean the house and get some stuff done, maybe you want to put it on, right? Like, Yeah, and I'm a big metal fan. I love Mastodon. I adore, uh, I adore Norwegian black metal uh, is one of my favorite things. Um, also, the best episodes of Last Podcast on the Left are the ones that deal <laughs> with Norwegian black metal. And the church burnings and the murder and, oh, craziness. But uh, it doesn't quite get to that level. But it definitely seems like they're trying. <laughs> and they just don't make it. Like, had they actually gone out and really legitimately tried to make Hashpipe a metal song instead of a Weezer song that's just heavy? But they have to do that. They're a Weezer. Yeah, that's true, but there's a way they could... I honestly think Weezer could have, like, a solid doom metal album in them. I I really... They should really try it. Like, just go crazy. Oh, yeah. I really want to just hear River just screaming into a mic. (laughs) I don't know if he could scream anymore. Uh, That might be true. I don't know. (laughs) When Feels Like Summer first came out, it is so high that I just was like, oh, his throat must hurt at the end of the day because he's like trying really hard mm-hmm. to sing that high part because it's like, feels like some, you know, it's even high for me. Like, I don't know how you would do that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. We just went on a ramble. Yeah. I don't know what my point was there. That's what Go happens. Ahead. But yeah, yes. uh, Hashpipe is terrible. It's the worst song ever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I think that the production here really adds to the entire overall production. I did find one live version of it that was good, but it wasn't the album version, which I think really speaks to uh, Rick Ocasek's work. And it really hasn't been played very often lately. I think the last time, according to Setlist FM, off of the top of my head from earlier, it's not on the notes, is the last time it was played was 2017. And before that, it had been... I don't know, at least seven to 10 years before they played it before then. So imagine having a catalog big enough that you can just do a song every seven to 10 years. Right. Uh, I mean, I guess, I guess Morrissey could do that because he cancels the end of every tour. Um, right. But yeah, that's, that's just pretty impressive. <laughs> Poor Morrissey. He's always like having a hard time with his I love life. him so much. <laughs> and three times he is because San Francisco is always the last show of the tour. And three times in a row, I've had tickets and three times in a row he's canceled. <laughs> bitch. I, that's a really annoying. I had the red hot chili peppers do that to me and mm-hmm. I was very disappointed. Yeah. The chili peppers actually put on a really good show. It's somehow always in a venue that is ill-prepared for the chili peppers. I think <laughs> I've, I've seen them, I guess four or five times now. And Usually, they are amazing. Always, crowd control is terrible. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I imagine it would be hard because people want to rock out. Yeah. And when you have a band like, say, Primus, for example, another one of my favorite bands, they know what they're in for. Um, right. They're prepared. They've got like a wall of security everywhere. Yeah. Maybe venues just think that all of Red Hot Chili Peppers is under the bridge. <laughs> Maybe that's... Or that those fans aren't going to be crazy. Yeah, exactly. Because it's just regular rock or it's yeah. popular. It's not those crazy metal heads. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> the L.A. thrash scene of the late 80s, early 90s is one of my favorite eras uh, that, you know, I managed to be around a little bit. 
you know, back when you had Jane's Addiction and the Chili Peppers and you had the early versions of the Rollins band and all of those just, oh, and Fishbone and just great stuff that was just, but yeah, just good times. <laughs> I guess that the, um, there's a quote in the liner notes, which this is from Wikipedia. I need to get my CDs out so I can look at my own liner notes. Um, so it says, and I'm going to screw this up. Torniamo all'antico sarà un progresso from Italian opera composer Giuseppe Verdi. Ver- Verdi? That means let us return to the old times and that will be progress. So if we are going to do this green album with Rick, do an ode on the cover simplify our music, get back to Weezer town. We'll move forward again, hopefully on a, on a trying hard enough night or something. I will have a lot to say about this, this particular phrase a little later. Um, Cause it all plays into the grand scheme of what this okay. song is. So soy rev posted on Monday of no- November 23rd, 2009 Aside from simply being a series of consonants and vowels that sound nice to each other, nice together, um, like give me some love, give me some this seems to be a song, perhaps subconsciously, about love and in lines about the hard rock radio where they play tunes, where they play riffs with the hard rock beat, rock and roll. And in that wonderfully concise lifting bridge, Give me something I can believe. There's something to be said for how it all ties together. Um, it's a song about finding transcendence, be it through a relationship or a great song you find on the radio. And it's got a youthful heart beating behind its assaultive vocal rhythms, which I'm not sure that the um, vocal rhythms are assaultive, but... Yeah, no, I would I would definitely disagree with him on that point. Uh but I think it's transcendent, don't you? Oh, I absolutely do. I think that I think that's what's interesting about the way the vocals are delivered is that he is with his voice performing the role that guitars often do in Weezer songs. Ooh, I like that. You're and, right. Yeah. And you know, give me some love, give me some love, give me that, give me that, believe. Yeah. It's that's, like he's going with the probably Brian's strumming or him too. And I think that really, that's one of the things I really like about it is that there's this wave idea to it that really works. And it just, you know, it's, it's not exactly the most memorable song, Mm -hmm. but when you really stop to, to, to listen to it, it's like, wow, there's a lot going on. There is a lot going on for a song that doesn't have a music video, which makes me very angry. (laughs) (laughs) They should have done one. This is a weird music video time for them. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, they could have gotten rid of the music video they did for um, um, Hashpipe. That could have gone. <laughs> oh, poor Hashpipe. <laughs> that music video wasn't good either. No, it wasn't. <laughs> so, And for a band like... that, that lives and died off of their music video, without the Sweater Songs video, without, honestly, Spike Jones should have a couple of their gold records uh, because... He brought so much to Weezer. And Gosh, is he still alive? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, Spike. They should I do saw a video him about with him again. A year ago. Carl. 
um, he's he's doing good. Is he like super old now? No, he's our he's our age, right? He's a little older than me. I think he's like fifty. Okay, I was gonna say because he was young when he was doing videos. Yeah, he was about twenty five ish, I think. Um, I want to be a music video producer in my twenties. Would that be fun? <laughs> like a a wanted one. I did a little bit of music video production back in the day. Um, I I now I do the most of the films that I make when I make movies are. I take footage I find off of like Internet Archive and I cut them to music I find off of Free Music Archive just because I like the word archive. And <laughs> uh, I make little music videos. So I did one for this song called Peralta Boards that uh, intercuts between a modern women's wrestling match and a newsreel footage of a wrestling match from 1948 and sort of bouncing back and doing all sorts of weird effects. Um, I'm no Spike Jones, fun. but. Uh, that should get me the directing job for another Weezer video. So just call me, guys. I agree. I know they listen. Um, it's obvious. Oh, yes. They are uh, subscribed, <laughs> I, they told me. And they have rated us five stars. Oh, there you go. Perfect. Did they leave a review? <laughs> they haven't left a review yet. Uh, so, you know, Rivers, I'm waiting. Just, <laughs> you know, whenever you're ready. And... Um, yeah, I don't know. I wish. Yeah, I'll even take one from Brian. Um, maybe <laughs> not Mikey, um, but <laughs> no, that would be a little creepy if it was Mikey. Yeah. <laughs> it would be like, whoa, who? How'd that happen? <laughs> you know, all this reminds me of something from the Consequence of Sound article on Weezer's <laughs> ten best deep cuts. I love it. Nice. Yes, tell us about it. Well. Uh, Michael Rothman and Justin Gerberon on at 9 a.m. Actually, I remember this vividly <laughs> on October 24th, 2017. Um, I think they said something roughly like, OK, so the beginning does sound a little like perfect situation, but don't forget. A little? Yeah. Don't forget this came out about four years prior. Even so, there's no disputing the earworm of a verse where Cuomo leans in hard on the gimme repetition. It's angsty, it's catchy, it's everything you love about Weezer. The way he goes full circle at 2 minutes 10 seconds, returning to the verses after one hell of a solo, it's it's downright heroic, to say the least. And right? don't even get me started on the last 25 seconds. Good lord. <laughs> um, and just, they, they captured so much of what I was feeling uh, without actually saying what I felt, which is, you know, really intense. Uh, but yeah, I think they hit one thing really interesting here is the angsty nature of it. Yeah. If you just read the lyrics, I kind of have a hard time coming up with the angst. Uh, yeah, you have to listen to it. Yeah. And I think the whole presentation, again, it's a, it is a, a song that is made up of the whole. And right. I think once you get to that point, it's like, yeah. There's so much here. This should have been a single. This would have made a great single. It would have easily failed the chart. Um, and, you know, that sort of idea is, you know, a lot of the songs that we forget about, just the only reason we forget about them is because they never showed up as a single somewhere. They didn't get mm -hmm. radio play, which is a shame. That's why it's so fun to do this show, because sometimes you forget about these songs that are awesome and to go back and listen again or think about them again 
makes you appreciate them in different ways than had you just been listening to the Green Album one day, you know? Mm-hmm. True. It's and like... I think, I think doing the deep dives is a wonderful, wonderful aspect. I mean, one of the things that I do with Three Minute Modernist is I distinctly winnow down everything so it comes in a three-minute package. Because most of the stuff I'm looking at, I could talk about for an hour and a half. I could just gush. Yeah, I don't even know how you do that. uh, It's pretty easy. Uh, You (laughs) just turn off the recorder at three minutes. You Um, just shut up at three minutes. (laughs) Yeah, actually, at one point on my iPhone, I could set recording times. And I would set it for three minutes, five seconds. So I would have five seconds edit out. Uh, And usually they would end up being three minute and five second episodes. But... You know, this deep dive concept really works. And for a song like uh, this, it really helps because when I did my deep dive, I found the truth behind this song that not even Michael Rothman and Justin Gerberon <laughs> at 9 a.m. At 9 a.m. on the 24th of October, they were still <laughs> celebrating my birthday from three days prior, uh, which, you know, good guys. And I'm so glad they took time out to, to tell us this. But they were completely missing the point about this song, which tell us, which is this song is not a love song. This song is a reflection of their career up to this point and the seminal band Sugar's career up to this point. And now for the kids, Sugar is a power pop band similar to bands like the smithereens big star uh sort of that sort of jangly but kind of fuzzed out rock that you were getting in the uh 80s and early 90s and they're australian no they're 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 from the u.s they're from the u.s okay they looked something else well their lead singer bob mould uh looks like he's been living in a cave a wonderful musician was in a band called husker do and uh, later wrote for World Championship Wrestling as one of their writers for years. Um, oh. But I digress. When Sugar released their first album, Copper Blue, it was a massive success. Huge success. It was considered one of the finest albums released ever. It, to this day, is actually listed on top 100s of all sorts of, of lists that make things like that. <laughs> their second EP was called Beastly? Beastery, beast knee. It was a beast song. Uh, I can tell you right now, it is called Beaster. Beaster, mm-hmm. that's it. That's right, like Michael Bester. Okay. So their second album is an EP called Beaster. And it's hard. It's heavy. It's, 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 there's a lot of grind to it. And what ended up happening was... Sugar was very, very popular on the alternative radio scene. Your live 105s. I can't remember what it is down in L.A. Um, K-Rock? K-Rock, uh-huh. K-Rock, yeah. You know, that sort of, it was getting all their play there. But this second album was so hard and heavy, the only place you could really get it was your hard rock radios. What Up here, we would have been KOME at that point. You know, the things that were at that point, you know, better known for ACDC. And um, Beaster came out in 93. 93, that's right. Uh, my senior year of high school. I'll <laughs> never remember it. Um, Good times. Yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> but uh, what's incredible is that 
they didn't necessarily lose their fan base, but they lost their way. Because after Beaster, their third album, File Under Easy Listening, it just, they lost it. They fell apart. And so, kick it on back, kick it on back to what you know. Give me some love, give me some love, sugar on the hard rock radio. If you look at the lyrics, I have not yet seen a comma between sugar and on the hard rock radio. I And there's commas after other sugars. True, but not that one. And so where they play tunes, where they play tunes, where they play riffs to the hard rock beat. Give me some love. Give me some love. Sugar. From the top of the old school meat. What they're saying is they didn't want new sugar. I'll guarantee you for a fact. And I, I didn't get to do as much of a search as I wanted to. I guarantee you Rivers loved sugar. I know for a fact he <laughs> loved Husker Du because they covered him. But I, I wouldn't put it past them for sure. And they're they're in the same time frame. Right. Weezer's first album is amazing. It sets the bar so high for mainstream intelligent riff-driven fuzz rock. And at the time you really didn't have that sort of now it sort of gets the cliche that, you know, this is what a band sounds like when they're new. But it wasn't like that then. And really, the only bands that were sort of doing the same thing as Weezer were Rocket from the Crypt and Smashing Pumpkins. And Weezer was doing it so much better than either of them. And then they do Pinkerton. And it doesn't connect the way that the Blue Album did. They have to reconfigure so they don't end up being Sugar. So that Mm -hmm. that one misstep doesn't lead them away. Give me some love. Give me some love, sugar, from the top with the old school meat. Like they're blue. And same with Rick. Exactly. And same with the the cover. Yes. And it all ties back, of course, to that remarkable phrase, Torniamo aladico e sera un progresso. I'm glad that you're here to say that for us yes let us return to the old times and that will be progress this is a song about their career path and about the fear that they will when they turn the next page the simple act of turning a page that the page that they look at will be better than the not as successful page commercially uh that was before this is their hope for what the album will be that they didn't want this to be sugar's career path because after three albums sugar broke up weezer wanted to keep going well and even in like the second verse it's sugar it's like give me some love give me some love sugar that's the wrong way to be so don't be pinkerton that's right don't be pinkerton be the blue album. Right. And so everything about everything on here is so, that is so like. It all ties in, man. So deep, man. I, I, I can't handle it. My brain exploded. Like, <laughs> And you know, this is the amazing. Who would have thought? Yeah, it's there, man. It's right there. And I searched for two hours looking for any other <laughs> reference and found one one distinct link 
And it was the fact that Bob Mould himself said that the Green Album was the best Weezer record. And who is that? He is, is that the, the lead guy singer from of Sugar. Sugar. Get out of here. <laughs> and what did he say that in? Uh, he said that, I want to say it was in, it wasn't a pitchfork thing. It was The Quietest, thequietest.com. The article is called Flip Your Wig, Bob Mould's Favorite Albums, uh, with his new 11th solo record, Beauty and Ruin. Uh, the Husker Do and Sugar Frontman gives Nick Hutchins, Hutchings, his top 13 record, and the first one, no, the third one, is Weezer's Green Album. How about One Guilty Pleasure, Weezer's Green Album? There's a band that really gets hit with the critic stick pretty hard. I know their fans are insane, and they have these really crazy opinions about everything, but there's just something about that record that's super pop. Islands in the Sun, Hashpipe, not so much, literally. Um, <laughs> but it's more like Don't Let Go, Knockdown, Drag Out, Simple Pages. Those mid-tempo, really heavy ones, like the ones that Copper Blue feel. And that's Rick Ocasek that produced that one. So it's got that super compressed, modern, everything up front sound that's really cool. A pop record. Nothing wrong with that. I don't think it's supposed to mean anything but pop music. Rivers Cuomo is a good songwriter. He has a good way of turning a phrase. He has a really fun riff on stuff. Wow. That is a, see, that is a good quote. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's a lot of my feelings about the Green Album right there, um, including the, the knock on hat pipe. <laughs> well, yeah. And it, it kind of, I mean, I, I agree with everything that he said. And that's what I like about Sometimes you're reading these articles and you're just like, what the F are you talking about mm -hmm. with your descriptions? I think sometimes people want to describe things just to hear themselves be, try to be fancy. And you don't have to do that. It, obviously, Bob is just talking like a normal person and you're like, fuck yeah, man. That's what I think too. Like, it's like, you're saying you don't have to love it. It's pop music. Just enjoy it. There's some songs that are awesome on it. And here's why. And you know what? Honestly, I'll say that the uh, that his love of Rick Ocasek is so obvious in everything he's done. Um, and if you again, if you haven't listened to Sugar, Copper Blue is an amazing album. Uh, it is. I'll have to check it out. It's really, really solid. File Under Easy Listening is good too. Beaster is really good, but Copper Blue is is phenomenal. Particularly if you lived through that time, that time before Weezer. I don't even know what I was listening to before Weezer. I was listening to Perry Cuomo. Uh, <laughs> no, wait, that's Perry Cuomo. I was listening to former New York Governor Cuomo, um, <laughs> probably. No, I know, actually, I know exactly what I was. I was listening to The Smiths. I was listening to The Cure ah. and Depeche Mode and The Special. I was listening to SWV and Boys to Men and Salt and Peppa. Salt and Peppa's here, and we're in effect. TLC. Want you to push it. Um, throw that out there. Digital Underground was another one of my favorites. The Humpty Dance is a great song. <laughs> and it really is. That's the weird thing is that the Humpty Dance is a great song, and it really is a great song. <laughs> I don't think you can listen to the Humpty Dance and not dance. Well, it's supposed to look like a fit or a convulsion. <laughs> uh, but it's funky. It makes you want to like... Yeah, it's so good. Um, and that's the weird thing is that, you know, my... My exposure to rap was fairly early. I actually had Rapper's Delight 
probably by 1982, 83. And then the Beastie Boys happened. And I was never a big fan until I was in middle school because every kid likes Fight for Your Right to Party. Um, right. That was just 80s to me. Like, I was like, oh, okay, you know, yeah. I was a kid. I didn't care about them when that came out. But then when, you know, you got Public Enemy and Tribe Called Quest, things were like, yeah, okay, this is cool. And I was actually kind of on a a rap, what we now call hip-hop kick, <laughs> up until probably 91 when I got all the goth depressing music, lots of Morrissey. And of course, Elvez the entire way through. Uh, the Mexican Elvis, still one of my favorite musicians. Never heard of him. <sighs> there is a man who has several documentaries done about him. Uh, he's an art curator, mostly dealing with Chicano art down in L.A., and he is... Is he a wrestler, too? No, I wish. Um, but <laughs> he also is an amazing musician and does one of the best Elvis imitations I've ever seen. And El Rey de Rock and Roll, he said. How can I not know anything about this person? Look up Elvez and okay. be be prepared to be amazed. It's I phenomenal. <laughs> uh, he's one of the three best things about Los Angeles. Wow. That is a large statement. Yes. Los Angeles is a large city. <laughs> well, to say, because there's like a lot of things that are good about here, I think, but to have one fake Mexican, Mexican, yes. I'm assuming, Very Elvis, so. be one of those, one of three, I think that would be, that's a, that's a statement. I think what are the other two? Well, the other two, of course, are the La Brea Tar Pits. Uh, <laughs> how could it not be? Um, and then, you know, I can't. Now that Kim Fowley is dead, uh, can't run into him on the uh, on the strip anymore. Has to be the whiskey a go go. Wow, I like I like the whiskey. I haven't been there in a really long time. I wonder if it's scary on the inside or if they've redone it at all. I do think they redid it for the fiftieth anniversary. Okay, I think they did a, did a revamp. Yeah. Now, of course, the caveat to that is I've never actually been to Lacma, uh, so <laughs> that. That might be a, a kicker there. Uh, yeah, you've got to go. And also, they opened a new, um, it's called the Broad. Have you heard about this? No. It's a ginormous um, contemporary art museum right across the street from MOCA, the Museum oh. of Contemporary Art. Oh, okay. It's huge, like huge, like a MOMA oh, wow. in downtown. And it's got, it's gigantic. I haven't been there, but I've been to LACMA, which I think is kind of a cross between Mocha and the Getty. So I, I think the Broad is all contemporary. I've never been to the Getty either, but that's largely because that's not my art phase. Pre-1945 uh, is not really <laughs> my scene, <laughs> um, which yeah. is a fair chunk of art, I guess. <laughs> right. It's very history there. Yeah. It's got a beautiful view. You can't beat the view. Oh, true. We just went to the Natural History Museum, and I thought we were going to the tar pits. I didn't know they were different, and they're owned by the same people, I've dis I've discovered, but not on the same grounds. The so tar pits are better. They're my son was so disappointed, or not disappointed. I was disappointed. My son had no idea. He just wanted... We still got dinosaurs. There you so go. So that was cool, but... I wanted to look at tar on the floor and like, you know, watch 
scientists pull stuff out. And yeah, that's the best, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's funny that you said that because I we meant to go there last weekend and we ended up at Natural History, mm-hmm. which is so cool. I I don't think I've ever been there, so I've never had the experience of walking into a giant dark room and having these like caves of light with taxidermy animals in them. Oh yeah, it's the Natural History Museum's cool and the what's the other museum I've been to down there? The Max Factor Museum is surprisingly nice. And ho- good old Hollywood Boulevard, right? That's right. Yeah. I spent a lot of, I used to actually I basically lived in the lobby of the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel for a little while. I literally had an apartment right next to the Magic Castle. Wow. Uh, I was looking for work and, you know, when you're trying to be a comedy writer, uh, you basically you send out a bunch of resumes and you wait for people to call you. Well, I had a cell phone. So I basically would walk down to the Roosevelt. My bartender started his shift at 10 a.m. Old fashioned, Chris. Old fashioned, Mike. And he'd give me an old fashioned and I'd sit down and I would enjoy my <laughs> day. <laughs> yeah, I met I met a lot of really, really fun people. I met Lee Schreiber, for example. Uh, oh, cool. Wonderful actor. David Sanborn, wonderful musician. Mike Patton of Faith No More, got got to see him one afternoon, uh, probably high out of his mind. Um, <laughs> and then Kim Fowley, the man who uh, broke any number of bands and was one of the strangest human beings who ever lived, most famous for The Runaways. And okay. he, was, he was a regular around that part of town at that point. And there's never been a more criminally insane human being who has ever lived. And yet at the same time, he's exactly the type of person who would have come up with that sugar theory for simple pages. And I thank him for that. I think that it you would be hard pressed to deny the sugar theory now that we've talked about it. That's and right. And every especially hearing that quote. Yeah. Every other Weezer podcast now will have an episode about the sugar theory. And I I agree. Or it'll be on some kind of it'll be on Weezerpedia. That it, everything should be on Weezerpedia. Weezerpedia is slipping. A friend of mine kind of... told me that the pizza place where they played one of their very earliest shows is about to be sold. And he wants to get people to buy it. So that he can own a piece of Weezer history? And I think he just wants to make pizzas for a living. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that'd be super cool. <laughs> Yeah. So have you ever like gone to a Weezer concert and met Weezer or like what's your, what's the closest you've ever gotten to them? Closest I've ever gotten to them? I almost certainly met Brian. And I say that just because we were both at one of the BFD concerts out here. And the BFD. he was, he just guested with a band of the late 90s who i cannot remember um might have been one emotional fish might have been too much might have been too much joy now that i think about it but and i was working the event and i met a ton of people but also i don't think i could pick brian out of a lineup so i probably did (laughs) (laughs) but you don't know well, say yes, you did. Yeah, I think the only time I have seen Weezer has been at one of those. I think it was at BFD or uh, Day on the Green or something like that. I used to go to a lot of those from Lollapalooza in 93 through BFD in 2000. 
I probably went to 50 of those. What's BFD stand for? A uh, big fucking deal. Oh. Uh, Live 105, our local modern rock station. It's their big annual concert. And it's, it's based gotcha. off of, what was the one? The Weenie Roast and... Uh, yes, that's K-Rock's Weenie Roast. That's the big one that... I don't know if they have it anymore. Yeah, I don't think they do. I think they've even stopped BFD. But, you know, you'd have the Warp Tour and all those things. And I would go constantly. And I saw a lot of bands and a lot of really good bands. And I saw a lot of really crappy bands. <laughs> but I, I'm, I think that's the only times I've seen Weezer have been of those. They play. Any plans to see them on this next tour? Uh, as the father of two three-year-olds, um, it is highly unlikely. <laughs> it's highly unlikely. We've, me and my wife have gone to exactly one show. And we've been married now for four years, dating for four years and six weeks. Um, is that her now? No, actually, that's my alarm reminding me that I uh, need to pick up eggs. <laughs> <laughs> but we went to one show when a band called Too Many Zoos came around. And have you ever heard of them? No. They are a band that formed in to play in the New York subways. And they play what they call Brass House, which is basically house music played on a saxophone, a trumpet, and a marching band drum. And it is insanely good. That sounds so cool. They are so awesome. There's the the saxophonist is this guy called Leo P. And he he plays a baritone sax, but gets up into the high register on it and is just like insane. It's he's the greatest saxophone player I've ever seen. And I've seen five saxophone players. <laughs> but He's my son, John Paul's favorite musician. And when we went to go see him, they're, you know, a band that typically plays New York subways isn't going to be in San Jose, California all that often. So we went and we got, you know, my brother-in-law to watch the kids for the night. And it was our date night. <laughs> and Leo signed a toy saxophone for little John Paul. Oh, how nice. He plays it constantly. He just loves it. <laughs> Uh, it's his like favorite thing to the point where Leo's signature is completely worn off. <laughs> oh, you should have like taken a picture for posterity. Yeah. Luckily we have photos of the event of him getting the saxophone of the signature on the saxophone of Leo signing the saxophone. Okay, good. Awesome. Yeah. And you know, it's there. It happened. A great band. Very, very different than anything I listen to or anyone listens to because I think they're the only ones. Wow. I, I'll have to check that out. That legitimately sounds cool. They're very cool. Yes. They're one of those, you know, hidden gems that broke out be largely because of YouTube. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I can't even go down that baby shark hole. Baby shark. <laughs> My boys love baby shark. Um, and we have a, I made a playlist for them that opens with, uh, baby shark and then there's a series of songs called truck tunes okay and they are the guys who did it are insane they must that's the only way i can put it <laughs> because they do they do things called 20 trucks where they take uh, single songs on 20 different trucks so one's on dump trucks one's on beach cleaner trucks wow but each one is done in a different style so one might be country and western the one that i put on was uh excavator which is somewhere between Depeche Mode and uh, it's 
excavator. And then there's a breakdown in the middle that is... A, I love it. Like, it has that great... Excavators are also called diggers. That is because they primarily... Oh, the talking of the 80s. Yeah. And I'm dying. It's so great. <laughs> and then it goes straight into Philip Glass's score for the hours, followed by... Actually, that might be the sweater song followed up by uh, Rocket from the Crypt's Ditch Digger, um, which two songs that I saw endlessly on 120 Minutes, which uh, I miss 120 Minutes so much. I know, me too. I saw Matt Penfield in real life at a concert like six months ago, and I tweeted at him and he said hi. Back. Oh, wow. And I was like, where'd you go? I wanted to go like, uh, just like, I don't know. I think I just wanted to give him a hug or something because <laughs> I was so excited that I recognize him and have a fond- I have a fondness in my heart for him. And he had a podcast. I don't know if you listened yep. to it, but it's done now. But um, still good. Is it still going? Because I thought he stopped. I think he might have stopped. I stopped listening a fair while ago. <laughs> yeah, it's actually it's interesting. I interviewed the last time I was in this room. Um, I interviewed Adam Curry who's now called the pod father because he's one of the folks who was very early on in podcasting, but he was one of the MTV VJs and hosted a uh, headbangers ball. And hold on. I'm trying to, cause that name is so familiar. Tall, lots and lots of blonde hair. I cannot do an imitation of him. Like I can do a Matt Pinfield. <laughs> okay. I'll have to look it up. But yeah, Adam Curry, you'll look at him and you say, Oh yeah, that guy, he looks like he was a member of poison. Really great to do an interview with him because there's a man who can just talk. He's amazing. Um, all those MTV folk, they all started doing podcasts. And that's that's like the thing. Like, I really want the podcast from Kurt Loder. Uh, that, that's oh, going to be yeah. my – that would be so yeah. great. <laughs> like, he's I, I an imagine- actual uh, like newscaster now. Like, yeah. He's on the regular news. I know uh, what he would say. He would probably say something like uh, – you know, I was the only adult in a group of children for 15 years. And <laughs> and I've grown up and I don't want to fucking talk about MTV or rock music anymore because I'm a grown up. Yeah, that's probably a good point. <laughs> Although there were grown ups at MTV, apparently. Two of them. They were the <laughs> ones who signed the checks. <laughs> uh, plus, I think, I don't know. That's like how you got where you are today. So, yeah. You got to represent and like be thankful for it. So I don't think he would really say that. I think he would just say, nobody wants to hear me talk like talk about that anymore or something modest. But everyone does. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do. I would. I think Matt Penfield should keep going and, you know, but who knows? Okay. Final thoughts? Final thoughts. <sighs> for me... It's a fun, poppy song. It's very catchy. It's better than most of the other songs on the Green Album. It's not my favorite song in the whole wide world. But if I'm looking at the Green Album, it's definitely a song that I like on it. And I really like it a lot. When I saw the, the title and thought about suggesting it, I was like, I really like that song. I hope we, you know, I hope we get to talk about it. So, but there just truly isn't that much on it. Um, yeah. Now on the internet. Re- so it's one of those ones that you have to do like really deep dive. So. 
Yeah. And now you're going to be referenced as the only source for this song's information. Yes. I need to have a transcriber. (laughs) Yes. Take this down and then a someone else to put it on Weezerpedia for me. (laughs) (laughs) Cause I don't want to do that crap. Yeah. I think my final thought on this is when, when the history of humankind is written, three things will be said. One is that MTV was really cool up until about 1993. (laughs) Two, that, the best Batman was without a doubt Michael Keaton, but the best agreed, but the best Bruce Wayne was Val Kilmer. Uh, and three, that simple pages is a wonderfully straight ahead rock and roll song that does not disappoint. And it's a lot of pressure for Weezer. Cause if that's going to be the only thing that makes it off, off this planet, uh, you know, that's a lot of pressure to have on you, but I think they'll live up to it. I think I, I agree. Very good. Also, I don't know if I agree with you on the Val Kilmer statement, <laughs> even though I love Val Kilmer. Um, I love Val Kilmer, but that's also not his best film. No. Well, it's The Doors, right? Like Doors is probably my second favorite. I'm going to go with Tombstone. Oh, okay. I don't know if I watched that enough to have an opinion on it. So it is the most it. manly film ever made. Uh, it really is just a... Is that the one with like Emilio Estevez and... That's Young Guns. Okay. <laughs> Same thing. No, I know it's not. <laughs> Tombstone was serious. Young Guns was like a little bit like fun, right? Yeah, it was a teen film, really. <laughs> but it was it was actually a lot of... I have to say I've watched it in the last five years and I enjoyed it. W- which one was Lou Diamond Phillips on? That was, was, he, on... He, was in, uh, he was in Young Guns. Was Emilio okay. Estevez, Lou Diamond Phillips, Josh Brolin? Hmm. And Could some it? other guy. Patrick Dempsey, I think, was in it also. Oh, God. Well, so who else was in Tombstone besides Val? The greatest living American actor, Kurt Russell. Uh, oh, yeah. Sam Elliott. Oh. Uh, Dana Delaney. Billy Zane. Jason Priestley. Jason Priestley? I don't yeah, even... he was great in it, too. I can't bring that to my head. What happened to him? The 2000s. (laughs) Sugar Ray? Ray is still doing just fine. Or whatever that guy's name is. Were they ever doing just fine? Mark McGrath. Mark McGrath. He's doing very well for himself. So there's no reason why Jason Priestley couldn't come back. That's true. Brian Austin Green kind of did. Yeah. What did he do? He did. He actually was for a while was doing a lot of independent film work, um, which is where I sort of remember. He did this film, this short film called Bleach, that mm. is uh, remarkably dark um, about snorting bleach. That is weird. just so weird, and he was really good in it. And then um, Screech, he like is in prison now for San Jose stabbing zone. someone. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Wow. And, you know, you get the occasional uh, Melissa Joan Hart still works. That's great. I love Sabrina. Uh, me too. Well, for me, she's a she's Clarissa to me. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I love when I'm watching uh, some, some movie or something and I'm like, I remember them from One Life to Live. Or even <laughs> an even deeper cut, I remember them from Two Guys, a Girl, and a Pizza Place. 
featuring Nathan Fillion. That was one of his first big roles. Who's Nathan Fillion? Uh, Castle. Oh, okay. Also Serenity, of course. And one of my favorites of his, Dr. Horrible sing-along blog. Uh, so good. That's a, is that a movie? It's uh, Joss Whedon, who did uh, Buffy and all that, uh, uh-huh. did a, when there was a writer's strike, did a musical short, a superhero musical short, featuring Nathan Fillion, Felicia Day, and Doogie Howser guy, Neil Patrick Harris. Wow. And it's so that good. amazing. It is so good. It's dark. Okay. I'll have to check that out, too. I, mean, I have, like, a list of things to check out today. That's right. Are you ready to rate this bad boy? I believe I am prepared. Okay. I will go first. So I give simple pages, a lightning strap, a Weezer prom picture, Scott in a vest, and a blazer Brian for a total of eight. I, being me, <laughs> uh, give simple pages the following <laughs> ratings. One. A Laser Eyes Rivers. Two, a Lightning Strap. Three, Scott in a Vest. Four, Pat jamming on the drums. Five, Blazer Brian. For a total of 12. Very nice. So We Are Weezer gives Simple Pages a 10, which is not too shabby. No, it's not. It's so, more than eight, but less than 12. <laughs> it's like it's an, an average. average of them to <laughs> it's an average number i guess you would call it then yeah i think that'd be right <laughs> all right well that is it any other final thoughts before we get the heck out of here this has just been so much fun <laughs> so i think I, so too you'll have to come back i will gladly anytime okay, except cool. to talk about hash pipe <laughs> Well, uh, we've already done hash pipe, so you're in the clear. Wow. <laughs> All right, guys, we'll be right back with uh, to say goodbye. Well, that is all. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining me today. That was really fun. You'll have to come back. Anytime. I'd love to. Okay, cool. What's next? So we've got episode 44 and some kind of perfect situation mini. I don't know what they're going to be right now, but uh, you'll be the first to find out. Why don't you tell the peeps where they can find you and all of your podcasts and, and fun stuff on social media? Well, on social media, I am Johnny Eponymous on pretty much everything. That's J-O-H-N-N-Y-E-P-O-N-M-Y-O-U-S. Johnny Eponymous, yeah. Um, uh, On everything, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Tribe.net, Friendster, uh, LiveJournal, you name it. It's MySpace? Oh, yeah, I do have a MySpace page still. Um, (laughs) 
But uh, everything, I'm on that. And you can check out uh, Three Minute Modernist at threeminutemodernist.weebly.com. And that has the podcast, a whole bunch of blog stuff. And if you like film, I do a film blog called Klaus at Gunpoint. Uh, that's just Klaus at Gunpoint, all one word, dot weebly.com. Is that with a K? With a K, yes. Okay. Where I talk about everything from uh, avant-garde film of the 1960s to uh, the trash movies of the 1980s. And I uh, have recently been doing a lot of looking at Cinequest shorts, uh, the film festival I program for, about the short films that are going to be in the next year's festival. And they're all- Oh, cool. So yeah. So you can find me. I'm around. Yeah, you've got a lot. And And your Zodiac podcast, which is called Zodiac what? It's called Zodiac Speaking. Zodiac speaking. And And your uh, other one. Yeah. The other one is Match of the Year podcast. Uh, Zodiac speaking is actually on the Klaus at Gunpoint feed. uh, Okay. And you can find all of them. Everything I do is all on Apple Podcasts like everything else. And in particular, if you look for the Klaus at Gunpoint family of podcasts, that has everything I do in one convenient location. Oh, I like it. And we will also have links to everything on the show notes. So, and on the website, three minute modernist, I already have a link on the website. So we'll add everything else to on the show. And, uh, you can find we are Weezer. Wait, did I cut you off or do you have any more? No, no, but you okay. know what I want to hear? I want to hear where <laughs> I can find we are Weezer on say Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. <laughs> you are such a good, uh, co-host. I like it. We are at, we are Weezer. Oddly enough, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And our uh, website is www.weareweezer.com. We have merchandise. We have really cute Weezer stuff that's not really Weezery, but is Weezer. Check it out. Listen, subscribe, rate us, review us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that you like to listen to stuff. Please, because we don't have a lot and it would be really nice. Thank you, Brian, for the sound as usual. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And thanks again, Chris, for coming on. And we'll see you soon. And uh, adios. We are Weezer, we are Weezer, we are Weezer, and I love you.